0: Uh, Thank you again for joining us for worship today. Uh, I know in your bulletins, it says that we're going to be continuing in our series to the Gospel of Mark, but we're actually going to take a brief detour. And so if you know football and Peyton Manning, I'm calling Omaha, right? I'm calling Omaha. Now, um... We're actually going to be looking at the book of, uh, uh, I'm going to actually preach out of the book of Job. And now in my four years here at All Nations, I think I've done this once, right? So this is very like out of the ordinary, uh, very unusual. But uh, kind of what happened was um, I was sharing this message yesterday morning at our prayer meeting. There were only like 12 of us there. Um, And I was just really convicted that, um, that this was something our whole church needed to hear. Um, I was encouraged by it, I was challenged by it, and I want to bring it uh, to you guys. And so I shelved the Sunday sermon, and I brought an extended, a more robust version of our Saturday morning prayer meeting uh, devotion. And so if you were at that prayer meeting, um, consider it your Sunday seconds. Uh, I promise it's not sloppy seconds, right? There's, there was more into it uh, for this, and I hope that you just get that, that double blessing. Uh, so I'm excited to share today's uh, word, and it comes to us from Job chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Job uh, chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament, after Esther, before the Psalms. And so if you hit the Psalms, you've got to go more towards Genesis. Uh, it's also going to go up on the screen. Uh, may God bless the reading of his holy word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Amen. Amen. We'll finish the rest of the passage uh, as the sermon develops, but we want to pause there. The title of today's message is Faithfulness Through Suffering. Now, if you've read through the book of Job or if you've just heard about him, Job is a character in the Bible, you know that his name is synonymous with suffering, right? If you think of Job, you think of suffering, And you've probably heard that despite all of the suffering that he experienced, that Job remained righteous, that he was a man who didn't turn away from God. He was a man who did not sin. He did not curse God. Even when his own wife tells him, just curse God and die, Job refused to. So those are some of the things that we know about Job. He suffered intensely, and yet he lived righteously. And even though the book of Job was written thousands of years ago, I believe his story remains so relevant for us today. Because despite all of our modern technology, despite all of our social progress, humanity has not been able to solve the problem of suffering. We haven't. Modern humanity even, yeah, we have not been able to eliminate the problem of suffering. We can medicate our suffering. We can try to dismiss it. We can distract ourselves from suffering with Netflix and drama fever and movies and shopping and golf and more golf and, and things like that. We, we can distract ourselves from suffering, but we can't eliminate the problem. We can try to dismiss it. We can try to just grind through and push past it with determination and grit, but we can't solve that problem. And so all of these secular, all of these earthly, all of these temporary solutions, we've tried them, have we not? And they leave us hollow, and they leave us unsatisfied. And what we really need is a solution to suffering. What we really need is an answer to our suffering. We need to be able to understand it. We need to be able to account for it. We need to be able to journey through it, through that suffering, without being crushed without losing ourselves, without losing hope. And I believe that we can learn that today from the story of Job. And so as we work our way through the text, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to see the character of Job. Second, we're going to see the contest for Job. And contest, I mean the struggle, the challenge, the test for Job, not like the game show, okay? So there's a contest for Job. And then lastly, we're going to look at Job's response to suffering, okay? So the character of Job, the contest for Job, and Job's response to suffering. Let's begin with our first point. In our first verses, we're introduced to the character of Job. And off the bat, as you're reading these verses, you should note that that he's a wealthy man. That Job owned thousands of livestock. That he had a multitude of servants. And so donkeys, camel, sheep, oxen, goats, whatever it might be, he had it all, okay? This was Job. He was the greatest. He was called the greatest of all the people in the East. Job was in that 1%, right? That, that, that our news, social media likes to talk about. Job was in that upper echelon of success and wealth. Job was also blessed, with ten children. Ten cho- to support ten children, you have, to, you have to have means, right? He was blessed with ten children, seven sons, and three daughters. But in this introduction, more than his wealth, as we're reading these verses, we should note his character. And Job is described as a man who was blameless and upright. He's described as a man who feared God, and he turned away from evil. And so before suffering and affliction came into Job's life, Job was known as a faithful man. He was known as a righteous man who feared God. Now, how do we know he truly feared God? How do we know he was truly righteous? How do we know that this wasn't just hyperbole, that this wasn't just flattery? Well, we see that his, he was a righteous man, that he was a man of faith because we see his faithfulness as a father. You see, Job's seven sons, they would regularly hold feasts at their homes, one another's homes. And the, the, the suggestion is, as there were seven sons, there were seven days in the week, and they would just rotate your house, my house, the third brother's house, and they would go from house to house and just have feasts. They would eat, and they would drink, they would invite their sisters and their friends, and they would just have a celebration of life as the children of wealthy men. They, A wealthy man, they enjoyed all of the comforts and privilege of their father's house. But note Job's response to the merriment of their children. Now, it's not that they were sinning or doing anything wrong. They were just enjoying life and living it up, right? Note Job's response to the merriment and celebrations of his children. He doesn't condemn their feasting. He's just concerned with more. He's not satisfied that his children are so happy that they're flourishing and doing so well and enjoying life, he's concerned with something greater and something deeper. Look at verse 5 again. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the mark of a truly faithful and godly father. Father. We have many families and fathers here at All Nations today, and so I want to invite you to make careful note of God's word. You see, if you ask most parents what they want for their children, especially when they're young, when they're toddlers, infants, and babies. If you ask, what do you want for your child? What are your hopes? What are your aspirations for your child? Most of them will simply say, I just want them to be healthy. I just want them to be healthy. Before they know their personalities and their gifts and their abilities, when they're just crawling around and they're just nursing, all a parent wants for their child is to be healthy. My parents were no different. When I was two years old, Uh, I almost died of pneumonia in Korea. I almost died of pneumonia in Korea. I still have the scars along the side of my ribs from where they drained the the fluid from my lungs. And I know that that was the most difficult and stressful time of my parents' lives. Uh, I know that their faith was tested. I know that those were days filled with sleepless nights. So they fasted, They prayed for my health. They had all of the local churches and pastors and leaders praying for me. And at that time, they're not thinking about where they want me to go to school or what major or what kind of career or what kind of wife I have or where I live. And they're not concerned with any of those things. They just wanted me to be healthy. That was their one desire, and that was their one hope. The second thing that many parents will say about their desires for their children is that then, once they've secured their health and they grow older, they go through grade school and junior high and high school and college, at that point, as they're making bigger decisions for their lives, parents will say, I just want them to be happy. I just want them to be happy. I don't care if if they become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, preferably one of the three, right? I don't care, just pick one, just pick one, right? Whichever one you want. I just want you to be happy. I want you to be happy. And these are normal. These are natural. These are good desires parents have for their children, wanting their health, wanting their happiness. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not here condemning that at all. But here in Job, we see something so much greater. The godly father wants something so much greater than just health and happiness. He longs for his children to be holy. He longs for his sons. He longs for his daughters to be holy. He knows that though their happiness and health are good, they're not enough. They're not enough. So after all the feasting and after all the celebrations, he reminds each of his children of the dangers of sin. He reminds each of his children of the importance of holiness. He calls them to himself. He rises early in the morning to worship God on their behalf. He consecrated them, and that means set them apart. Okay, set them apart. He reminds them of who they are. You're not just my child. You're not just my son. You're not just my daughter. You belong to God. You are set apart. For the Lord. He said that to each and every one of his children. And he offers burnt offerings for them because they may have sinned. They may have cursed God in their hearts. They, have, they may have forgotten the Lord in light of all of their plenty and all of their flourishing and all of their celebration and drinking and eating and, and earthly happiness. They might have forgotten the Lord. Job takes every opportunity he can to remind them of who God is and who they are as the people of God, as the sons and daughters of God. What a powerful picture of biblical parenting. Job doesn't neglect the care of his children. He doesn't at all. But he knows that there is an ultimate calling he has as a father, and it's to fight for, to secure, to pray for, to labor for their holiness. That's a picture of biblical parenting, for a father to know that the greatest danger, the greatest thing that he needs to protect his children from, it's not the boogeyman, right? It's not just disease. It's not just poverty. It's not just a a, a shady neighborhood. The greatest thing a father needs to protect his children from is sin. That sin enslaves and leads to death that sin will blind your children from the beauty of God, that sin will deceive your children into believing that as long as they are happy and healthy and popular and succeeding and doing well in this world, that they are okay, that that's good enough. The godly father knows that those things are not good enough. Parents, do you believe, do you believe that what your children need most is holiness in Christ? Ask that. I know, like that ten school and that perfect area. That, that's important. You know, you want them to eat well, so you start shopping at Whole Foods. Where you're like, well, I never shopped at Whole Foods until yeah, you have kids and you're suddenly like organic, the best. You secure all of these things. I know you love your children so much, but the question today is: Do you believe that the most important thing that they could have in their lives? is holiness in Christ? That's the question today. Do you believe that there's no greater treasure for them to have is a relationship with God? Your children need to hear that truth. Your children need to hear you say that to them. Your children need to hear the importance, see the importance of holiness in your life and in their life. Just as Job's children saw him make burnt offerings on their behalf, your children need to hear it in your prayers. If all you're doing is praying for them to do well in school and obey their parents and not fight for their ch- fight with their kid, fight fight with their siblings, if all your prayers are filled with are just kind of like earthly securities, oh they they they, they got a boo boo on their knee, so God help them to not hurt anymore. There's nothing wrong with praying that, but if they never hear holiness, if they never hear of the dangers of sin in your words and in your prayers, how will they know that God is the greatest treasure in their lives? They need to hear it. They need to see it. They need to see it in your discipline. They need to see it in your affirmations. That's what Job modeled for his children, and I believe God wants us to model that to our children as well. That's the character of Job. And we see this man who is filled with so much faith in God, so much love for his children. He's about to be afflicted, afflicted by Satan. There's a contest, there's a challenge, there's a test for the faithfulness of Job. Let's pick up, go back to the text, and pick up at verse six. This is what we read. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came before them. The sons of God, we can just assume that they're angels and they're reporting to God. And Satan came also among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright? All that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In this passage, we have an amazing kind of dialogue between God and Satan, an amazing dialogue between them. And we hear that Satan has been searching the earth, going to and fro, and Satan has been looking for people to tempt looking for people to deceive, looking for people to ensnare. And God puts forth his servant, Job, as someone to consider. And God repeats the earlier word, just affirming the character of Job as a man who was blameless and upright, as a man who feared God and as a man who turned away from evil. And Satan looks at Job And Satan looks at Job's household, his 10 children, his thousands of animals, his multitude of servants. And Satan tells God, you know what? The only reason why Job is so religious, so faithful, so devoted to you is because you have made him rich. You have put a hedge around him. You have protected him from all of his enemies, all of his foes. You protected him from any suffering and any afflictions and any toils. Of course, Job would thank you. Of course, Job would love you. Satan's like, that guy is like the poster boy for hashtag blessed, right? He's a poster boy for that. Who wouldn't thank God? Who wouldn't thank God if you had such a comfortable, plush life? Satan says, but take those things away. If you take those things away, if you introduce suffering into his life, he will curse you to your face and die. What a funny kind of phrasing. Job will curse you to your face if you take away his animals, his land, his riches, his children. God agrees. He says, go for it. You can test Job. We'll have a contest. We'll see we'll see where Job's faithfulness really is, on the one condition that you don't directly afflict and strike Job. What's Satan doing here? Satan is attacking the very foundation of Job's faith. You see, Satan thinks that Job's faith is rooted in the material. He thinks that Job's faith is rooted in the circumstantial. All of his circumstances are good. The wind is always behind his back. The sun is always shining on him. Satan says that is the foundation of his faith, but God knows Job's heart. God knows Job's heart, and we're going to see it in our final verses. This is where we see the great affliction that Satan strikes on his household, and we see Job's response to his suffering. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down your servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Amen, the word of the Lord. In one day, back to back to back to back, in one day, Job lost his servants, Job lost his livestock, Job lost all 10 of his beloved children, and they were taken away by raiders and thieves, They were taken away by fire and natural disaster. In a whirlwind of tragedy, Job went from the richest man in the land to its poorest. In a moment, in the blink of an eye. And I want to note three things about suffering that we see in Job's story. Three things about suffering that we see in Job's story. First, it's this. Suffering exists because we live in a fallen world. Suffering exists because we live in a world that is stained by sin. You see, this is an important point. And I know for some of you guys, you're like, obviously, you know, you're not saying anything I don't know, but it's important because every time we experience suffering, every time you experience loss and pain and hardship, what do you do? You ask why, right? You wonder why, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my family? Why has this happened to us? And in searching for answers and in searching for explanations, we tend to blame ourselves or we tend to blame others, okay? That's our natural course of action, okay? Why did this happen? It's your fault. Or why did this happen? It's my fault. And that leads to self-loathing. That leads to so much confusion. Now, there are times when you suffer because you've done something wrong, okay? Simple example, if you lie and you get caught, you might lose your job. And if you do, you deserved it. Students, if you cheat and you get an F, you deserve that. Yeah, there's suffering, right? Perhaps you get expelled from school, so much darkness, so much pain, but if you cheated and if you lied and if you stole somebody else's property, whatever it might be, like, you know, you reap what you sow in that sense. So there can be suffering that comes into our lives that is a direct result of our sin and our disobedience. But here we see that Job's suffering doesn't come from his sin, but rather Job's suffering comes from the fact that he's living in a sinful world. He's living in a fallen world where Satan is his enemy. Satan is his foe. And Satan is working to actively deceive, actively stumble, to actively tempt the sons and daughters of God to curse God to his face and die. Satan wants to harden our hearts. He wants to discourage our faith. The Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of this world. And so as long as we are living in this world, we must know that there is an enemy and that suffering many times comes because we are living in a fallen world. Second thing we need to see about suffering is that suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned you. Okay, It's tied to the first, but suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned his people. There are so many moments when we are lost in the darkness, when we are drowning in pain and sorrow, and you wonder if God has forsaken you. You wonder if God even loves you anymore. You wonder if God is cursing you right now. You wonder if God is even present in your life. Well, from the story of Job, we see that just because we suffer doesn't mean God has abandoned us. Everything that happened to Job, all of his loss, all of his sorrow, was all under the watchful eye of his God. God was observing. God was still loving Job. God was still guarding and protecting his faith. He was allowing him to be afflicted. But God did not abandon Job during those moments. We need to see that. We need to see that. We need to believe that in those moments, just because we're suffering, it's not a sign that God has turned away from us. Instead, we need to see the third thing, that when we suffer, we are pressed to a savior. God oftentimes wants our suffering to press us to a savior. In the same way, every time we suffer, we ask why. The next thing we do after you ask why in the moment of your suffering is you try to save yourself or you go to a savior. You try to fix the problem. You go to help. We are looking for rescue in the moment of suffering and loss. We are looking for a savior. And this is where suffering tests your hearts. This is where suffering is going to ask you, who will you worship? Who will you run to? It tests your faith. So here's the thing. Everyone has a savior. After suffering, everyone will worship. But the question is, who will you worship? Who will you run to? If you think money is your savior, what are you going to do? You're going to go to money to try to fix your problems. Okay, We all do this. So many of us have problems in our lives and we just say, if I could just make a little bit more money, if I just had a little bit more money, all of these problems would be able to go away. I'd be able to pay for all of the, 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 the medical bills that, 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 that we have or I'd be able to get us out of bankruptcy or buy a house in a better neighborhood. I'd be able to make my wife happy with X, Y, and Z or make my kids happy and all of these things. And, and, and so many of us worship the idol of money. And we think that money will save us. That money will save you. That money will rescue you. That's a lie. That's a lie, my friends. Or if you think that, that man, you just, you're, you're stressed, you're in darkness, and, and comfort is your idol, what will you do? You'll try to medicate away your suffering. Whether it's through alcohol, whether it's through drugs, whether it's through a porn addiction, whether it's through media, whether it's through whatever it might be. And and what we will do in light of our suffering, you're gonna go to help. You're gonna go to something to ease the pain. And there are so many people in our community, so many people in our culture, where when we are struck with suffering and pain, our first move is to the bottle. Our first move is to the pills. We go right to the medication to alleviate the pain. If you think you will be saved by your relationships, parents will cling hard to their children. Oh, there's pain and, 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 and I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm just gonna cling to my children. I'm gonna focus on them. I'm gonna love them and wanna bet my life is ruined, but I'm gonna make their lives better. And you think that somehow by giving your children a better life, you will save yourself. You will redeem your life. That's a lie as well. Your children are not your savior. Your spouse cannot be your savior. You can't run to your friends and say, let's just hang out and let's play and let's go on vacation and then we'll find happiness and wholeness. Relationships cannot save you. You see, God allows us to suffer. He allowed Job to suffer because it led Job Job to worship. What did Job do in verse 20? He arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and that shows that he had genuine grief. There was brokenness. He cried out. He was ruined. He fell to the ground, but what did he do? He worshiped. Why? Because he knew that God was all he had, that God was his only hope. God was his portion. And he remembered who the Lord was and he remembered who he was. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. And that's why money can't save me. Relationships can't save me. Medication can't save me. Because the moment I die and turn to dust, those things are gone and they are no more. What will he do with the eternal soul that he has? Only God will save him. So he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of Of the Lord. That is the response of faith. That is the response of Job. And as I read these words, my prayer was, Lord, let me respond to you in the same heart, with the same resolve. May my family cry out to you when, not if, when affliction comes into our lives, into our household, may Job's words be our words. May this kind of faith be our faith. Now, friends, let me give you a reason to trust in God. It's one thing for me to say, just trust in God, just trust in God. But but for anyone who's, you know, thinking for themselves, they're going to say, why? Just because you said it and you say it kind of with authority and eloquently and with passion? Should I just trust God? Let me give you a reason. Because your God knows your suffering. God himself has suffered loss far beyond what we can understand. God did not spare his only begotten, his only beloved son. Remember the father's heart as he looked at his son, his righteous, his blameless, his perfect son, crucified to the cross. God knows Job. He's experienced that kind of suffering even greater Why should we trust God with our possessions? You know, God has experienced loss as well. If you read the account of Genesis, after each day and God's created the world, created the universe, he looks upon it and he says, it was good. He delighted in all of creation. He loved creation and he saw it ruined. He saw his beloved creation ruined by the power of sin as Adam and Eve ate that apple ate that fruit in the garden. They disobeyed him and sin and death entered into the world. God knows what it's like to to lose the things that you love, lose the things that you delight in. Here's the amazing news. Suffering is not the end. Suffering is not the end. God is a redeemer. God is a redeemer. And just as he saw the heavens and the earth afflicted, not the heavens, but the earth, afflicted with sin, God said, I will make all things new. I'm going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. I'm going to cure this disease of sin that has been plaguing creation. Just as he saw his beloved son dying on a cross, the father says, I will not allow my son to see decay. And on three days, I will raise him up. See, the father has suffered. He knows suffering. And yet our God is a redeemer. Brothers and sisters, today, would you consider God as a God who knows you, but he's a God who can also save you. He alone is the one who can rescue you from your darkness, from your affliction. Would you go to him? Would you cry out to him? Would you place your trust in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your promise to us today that you are a God who knows us, that you are a God who yourself has experienced such deep and profound suffering, and yet you are a God who refuses to abandon us. We thank you for your great love, and I pray, Lord, for any of my brothers and sisters here today who might be suffering in their own ways, struggling with their own doubts, whether it's financial whether it's with health, whether it's with just emotional, mental, personal struggles that they're experiencing, God, I pray that you would have mercy upon them, that you would show your love and kindness towards them, that in the midst of their darkness, that you would break through with your light. Give them the strength to trust in you. Give them the hope to cling to you and help them to see, Lord, that you are good and that you are trustworthy. I thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.